This podcast is a distillation of the important parts of a conversation I had with my panellists on Webinar 25 in the Black Dog Institute's MPRAC webinar series for GPs and mental health professionals. It's called Alcohol Misuse and Mental Health. And yes, I got into trouble for that title. You'll hear why. Let's listen. What we're going to try and do with this webinar is make you uh, feel confident about alcohol, particularly in the sense of being able to describe the way in which alcohol affects the brain, acknowledge the impact of normal or safe drinking on, on mental health, describe some strategies that you can use to motivate people to reduce their alcohol consumption, and identify some online tools that can support people in the use of alcohol and their desire to change their behaviour around alcohol. I'm Jan Orman. I'm GP Services Consultant at the Black Dog Institute and I write and deliver all the educational programs for the eMental Health in Practice Project. With me tonight, I'm delighted to say I have Dr. Hester Wilson. Hester is a GP and an addiction medicine specialist. She's doing her PhD at the moment and is chair of the RACGP Special Interest Group in Addiction Medicine. Thank you very much for coming, Hester. I'm Not sure by the end of the webinar, everyone will appreciate your presence. I also have with me Dr. Sarah Barker, who is a clinical psychologist. Sarah works as the professional education team educator with the Black Dog Institute, and she also is the director of Enrich Health and Psychology in Melbourne. Sarah's background includes a stint in Italy, um, looking after people with alcohol problems. That's right, isn't it, Sarah? That's right. Yeah, thanks, Jan. So Sarah's bringing an interesting uh, set of experiences to the webinar. And we also have Dr. Jane McLeod, who's a GP in Ipswich. Jane yeah. has interest in mental health, complex trauma, LGBTIQ health and Indigenous health. Welcome to the webinar, Jane. Thank you. And I forgot to write that I also work for Blood Dog doing... Um, teaching sessions too. <laughs> Shame on me for not mentioning that. <laughs> Here's Hester talking about why she didn't like my title. So, look, I would be very keen for us to be really mindful of the language that we use. And uh, the DSM uh, categorisation has moved from substance abuse through to substance use disorder. Uh, so, uh, terms such as abuse and misuse actually are quite value laden uh, and can actually uh, make people feel as though they're being judged or being discriminated or, or stigmatised. So, I really encourage everybody that's working in this area to just think about the language that you use. The other thing is we're using words like you're an alcoholic um, just as, as, as saying something like you're a diabetic we would tend not to use that language anymore what we would say is you're a person with alcohol dependence or you're a person with diabetes and they're not their illness they're humans they're persons they have a, a, a rich kind of human experience and they just happen to have a medical condition. Homer Simpson is one of the great heroes of the modern era like his namesake of the ancient era I guess and mm -hmm. Not everybody who watched The Simpsons knew that it was, in fact, satirical, and particularly, <laughs> particularly a lot of the children, our children and mm. their children, who have grown up watching Homer Simpson. This 
Uh, sentiment of Homer's is an interesting one. His toast to alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. How many of the people in our community that were influenced by Homer Simpson still believe that alcohol is the solution to all or many of their problems? So, how often in the course of your work do you ask people about their level of alcohol consumption? Sarah, how often do you, in the course of your clinical practice, ask people about alcohol? Okay, so I've probably got a few questions that in the initial session I'll tend to ask, and I've built um, questions around alcohol use um, just into that part of my general practice. Um, and I'll often just pre-empt that with, you know, this is something I generally ask all people when they begin because it's just helpful to get a sense of what the use is like. And, um, yeah, so mm -hmm. and I do find it useful clinically to know that as well. So bearing in mind that Sarah is a clinical psychologist, she's asking everybody at assessment about alcohol. Jane, what about you? Not children. <laughs> no, not children. Okay, okay. Well, maybe. Yeah, Jane, how, how about you as a general practitioner? How do questions about alcohol fit into your day? So I'd love to say I was perfect and asked everybody, <laughs> but I don't. Um, so I guess every new patient I would ask them, um, and then every patient who had, I guess, something going on that made me wonder if alcohol was making things worse or causative, that I would explore things. Um, and then all adolescents, I ask if I've got them without their parent. And I guess I've got the benefit of history over time, so I'm hoping I collect that data, or that information from them. Um, if it's not at the first appointment, then over time when I'm getting to know them. The World Health Organization stresses that we need to identify um, the people who are at risk of harmless or hazardous use before the onset of health and social consequences. So, and the majority of excessive drinkers are undiagnosed. So what that means to me is that it's our job to identify those drinkers. Is that a fair thing to say, do you think, Jane? Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, and Sarah, do yeah. you see it as part of your job? Yeah. Hester, I really know it's part of your job. But do, you, <laughs> do you think as GPs and psychologists we should be asking more about alcohol? Look, I, I think uh, if we look at the guidelines from the RCGP, they say ask everybody 12 years and older mm. every three years. So that's just screening everyone. And mm. then doing some case finding. If you're a bit concerned, if you think there might be an issue, then ask on top of that. Um, and, and certainly coming back to the whole thing around stigma and comfort and, you know, for us that uh, sometimes we can feel a little uncomfortable asking about some of these things. So the preface being, I'm a good GP, I like to make sure my patients are very well, and I always ask people about their lifestyle issues, can I ask you about yours, including alcohol. Uh, so setting up their permission to ask and asking, you know, regularly. So it just comes off the tongue that this is mm -hmm. what you do. It's not, it's not special or hard work or different in some way. So the first thing is we do need to know what a standard drink is. Um, so my, my uh, rule of thumb, because I can only remember three things and one more, is that a, a standard drink is 100 mils of wine, and that's a tiny bit in the bottom of the, gl the glasses. I've got glasses that can take six standard drinks at home. Um, so 100 mils of wine, 60 mils of fortified wine, 30 mils of uh, spirits, and a media beer. So that's your standard drinks. Um, and when we will go to the uh, guidelines, but just very quickly, you know, no more than two standard drinks on it on any one day over your life will decrease your risk of chronic 
uh, issues. And no more than four standard drinks on any one drinking occasion will decrease your risk of acute issues. So risky is more than the safe uh, recommendations, uh, but no consequences yet. And hazardous is consequences, but no dependence yet. It's interesting to note, and I don't know if these figures are going to surprise you or not, that 82% of Australians drink alcohol and 45% of them say they drink to get drunk. <laughs> now, the first time I ever heard someone say they were going out to get drunk, I was incredibly shocked and surprised because getting drunk is not something that's acceptable. <laughs> it wasn't acceptable in my background. So, uh, clearly, I led a sheltered and naive life. <laughs> Look at this. This is what people say in relation to their awareness of the guidelines. 43% of people are aware of the guidelines but not familiar with the content. In fact, in effect, they know that the guidelines exist but don't know what they say. 7% are aware of the guidelines and can actually quote them correctly for short-term risk. They know that four or more drinks on any one occasion is dangerous in the short term. And 42% have got that message about two standard drinks um, a day is probably the upper limit of safety for long-term risk. The other really good take-home message I would say with that is if you've got somebody that's drinking eight schooners, if they cut down to seven schooners, they will have a benefit. Mm -hmm. You know, so so it maybe it's just a little bit. Maybe it's actually just not having that last schooner, or maybe it's just dropping it down to four schooners, which is still six standard drinks. But it's it's like every drink that you don't have decreases your risk. So Hester, as far as the guidelines are concerned, do you think that if we keep drinking within the guidelines for our whole lives, we'll stay safe? Look, they're not safe. They're safer. Uh, you know, alcohol is a toxin uh, and uh, you can have issues even at the lower risk levels. And, and certainly there are individuals, in, um, the particular high-risk groups, adolescents, uh, particularly women uh, who are breastfeeding or, or um, pregnant, older people as well, uh, older Australians. And they're a group that are a little bit hidden. Anybody that's got liver disease, hepatitis C is at high risk. Anybody that's on sedating medications, alcohol can increase the risk of overdose. Uh, the other thing that it's important to know is the cancer risk. Alcohol causes cancer. It causes oral and pharyngeal cancer. It causes liver cancer. It causes bowel cancer. There's good evidence in men, not so much in women. But the big one that concerns me is breast cancer. It increases your risk of breast cancer and you still have increased risk if you're drinking in those safer levels. Of course, your risk goes up as you, as you increase the amount of alcohol, but I really think it's an important thing for us to be talking to women that, you know, a, a, an average woman with no uh, uh, genetic abnormalities or a family history has a one in 12 chance of having breast cancer in her life. That risk increases even with that safer level drinking. But there are certainly some groups who are more susceptible to alcohol consumption than others. The, the things like cancer risks are across the board, but and we're particularly interested in people with mental health yes. difficulties, aren't we? And the impact of alcohol on their mental health, even small amounts of alcohol. Hmm. I'm not doing so well these days. It may well be an ageing thing, but even just one glass of wine will make me feel dreadful the next day. And I have to tell you, I've got a bit of a predisposition to depression and two glasses of wine will make me depressed for a couple of days afterwards. Mm. So it's it's really is something that I'm very, very aware of. And I think something that's overlooked when you're talking to people about alcohol and not 
necessarily something that the, the drinkers register. What do people think getting drunk means? Now, for me, getting drunk means halfway through a glass of wine I start to feel a little odd. That's drunk for me. But maybe it's different for other people. Look at this. 47% don't think they're drunk until they start slurring their speech and losing their balance. 35% will think they're drunk when they feel relaxed. That's probably what I'm saying about myself. 14% don't think they're drunk until their blood alcohol level is 0 0.05 or more. 2% they're not drunk until they vomit and another 2% aren't drunk until they pass out. That's pretty amazing. And so what that means to me is that we have to be careful about how we ask the question of people. When we ask do you get drunk very often? We mm. need to be clear about what we mean by drunk and what they mean mm. by drunk. What about those special groups like pregnant women? 47.3% of Australian women drink alcohol during pregnancy. That's interesting, isn't it? But most of them stop drinking the minute they know they're pregnant. And it's my understanding, and Jane, I'll ask you this, that if they drink until they know they're pregnant, that that's not an issue. Is that right? Yes, it depends what they find out. So I guess if somebody found out they were pregnant at 28 weeks. Yes, okay, um, okay, okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm being a pain <laughs> in the bum. But you're right, so early early pregnancy, if somebody was drinking um, early on before implantation, um, then the risks are not there given that there's no alcohol entering the bloodstream towards the baby, the fetus. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's that up until? Which month is or which week could that be up until, Jane? Oh, I wish five. I could. That's right, five. sorry. But I figure my Week five. Said, okay, yeah. About five or six. Say? Week yeah. five. Yeah. From the beginning of the last period. The really really frightening thing on that slide, though, is that 22% of Australian women drink after they know they're pregnant. And I think there's a bit of a... Um, uh, trend towards a little bit won't hurt. Um, but <laughs> I think women need to know all about what can happen if they drink when they, they're pregnant. Bleeding, miscarriage, stillbirth and prematurity are pretty scary. Fetal alcohol syndrome has a lot of aspects to it, including slowed fetal growth and organ damage. Look at the facial abnormalities that occur in fetal alcohol syndrome. I spent some time looking for these pictures on the internet to put on the slide, and I am um, now seeing fetal alcohol syndrome as I walk down the street, which is pretty disturbing, really, and I think most women would be pretty horrified to think that um, – Strangers on the street could see that in their children um, if they drank while they were pregnant. The increased risk, risk of SIDS is interesting too that people don't necessarily know about. What about teenagers? Why is it that teenagers are not supposed to drink? It's because it impacts on their brain development. Kind of important, isn't it, Hester? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's also that inevitable likelihood of increased risk-taking behaviour in teenagers who are already inclined towards risk-taking mm. behaviour or self-harm and suicide if they are um, psychologically unwell. But there's also the increased risk of alcohol mm. use in adulthood if mm. you start drinking early. The other just bit of interesting uh, data around 
uh, young people and helping them to build skills around making choices with their alcohol. The two things that help is them having good drink refusal skills mm-hmm. and actually concentrating on the benefits of not drinking. They're the mm-hmm. two things that, are, that, that we can work with with young people. So we should be talking to pregnant women or women generally, to teenagers, to people who've got chronic alcohol-related conditions, and there's a lot of, lot of those in that list. Um, and in fact, it sounds like that as practitioners, we should be talking to everybody about alcohol consumption for the sake of the, the quality of their lives and the quantity of their lives for that matter. Tell us a little bit about the Audit C, Esther. Yeah, so this is from the World Health Organization. Uh, and the, the Audit has 10 questions and this has only three. So this is your screening audit. Now, the interesting thing that you need to know about this is that the Australian audit is different now to the WHO audit because we say how often do you have five or more standard drinks, whereas the WHO says six or more. So our NH and MRC guidelines are actually more moderate uh, than the WHO guidelines. There's a whole interesting story there that we won't get into. Um, but this is this is fantastic. I use this all the time. I don't use the scale. I just ask the questions, how often do you have a drink? How many standard drinks do you have? And how often on one occasion do you have more than five or more? The alcohol affects the brain, as we all know, acutely with intoxication. But more importantly, alcohol is a depressant, as I touched on earlier. And it works in several ways. One of them is by the sleep disturbance that it induces. You do not sleep normally when you've been drinking. Yes, you go to sleep faster, but you wake up after two or three hours when the the effects of the alcohol on the brain wear off. And the quality of your sleep is quite different. You don't get any deep, slow wave sleep when you're under the influence of alcohol. So, um, And we know how important sleep is, normal sleep, in the development of, uh, in the, the prevention of depression. There is also documented neurotransmitted disturbance that goes on when people are drinking lots of alcohol and you'll see those neurotransmitters listed there. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is also a direct toxin for the brain, causing brain injury and also brain injury as a result of vitamin B1 deficiency. And none of this sounds particularly good for you if you already happen to have a mental health So how do we help people make the link between alcohol and their poor poor mental well-being? Mood charting is probably the obvious answer to that. I have, in fact, had some success in helping people make those links with mood charting. What's your experience, experience, Sarah, with mood charting? I think it's great. I think it's really powerful, um, particularly if people can find a way that's simple for them, so an app that's on their phone. Um, and I think they often get quite into it and interested in seeing that relationship too between mood and alcohol use. So I think it's really powerful because it's almost like it just jumps out at them. Oh, you know, the penny drops. So, yeah, terrific. Mm-hmm. Mood charting something that psychologists have done for a long time but GPs mm. haven't necessarily been involved in. Do you do any of it, Jane? I love it as well. So I especially um, there's cute little apps that people can get that are free. Mm-hmm. Um, they're quirky. So I think it's fantastic for anybody um, when they're looking after their emotional well-being, especially then if they can link it to their alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. It's really good that you don't have to do it on paper now. Those apps yeah. are fantastic. And it's also worth mentioning that the My Compass program, which is a, a CBT-based program that with, which provides activities in all sorts of mental health areas, has an it's 
a Black Dog Institute program free of charge to all Australians. I'll get there in a minute. It also has an additional web-based app for charting mood against three other factors that you think might be important changes in your mood. So that's an extra bonus when people engage with the My Compass program. What do we do next? Once we've identified that alcohol is an impact on people's health, how do we go, where do we go from there? And I'd like to suggest to you that it probably depends to some extent on the severity of the problem. Some severe problems need medical intervention immediately, particularly those with severe problems who suddenly decide to stop. How do we assess people, Esther, to know whether or not they're going to have withdrawal symptoms from alcohol? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, people that will have withdrawal symptoms are alcohol dependent and there's a, quite a spectrum of symptoms that people will get. The big risk is that people will have medical complications that are potentially life-threatening. Uh, and those people will tend to be people who are drinking a large amount of alcohol on a daily basis uh, and will have had an experience in the past of trying to stop and not being able to uh, having a convulsion, um, having delirium tremens, uh, really, really becoming very, very unwell with their withdrawal symptoms. Ideally, if you can, those people need to actually not just suddenly stop drinking. Don't let them do that. Tell them keep on drinking until you can actually ensure that they're in a safe place and ideally inpatient, either in a hospital setting or in an NGO, depending on the level of risk that they have. I know that's not always, always easy if you're in rural regional areas, uh, but this is potentially life-threatening. Uh, and so it's really important that we work out who are the people that are high risk and actually get specialist services involved for them. And there are some clear guidelines for um, withdrawal at home if mm. you want to undertake that as yep. a general practitioner. Yep. Two, two take-home messages, Jan, if I can, about um, detox. First up, Revia or naltrexone, Camprol or Alcamprazate, uh, or even the experimental drug Baclofen, you do not use them in withdrawal. They are about relapse prevention. So they don't use them in withdrawal. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is if, if somebody does need um, medication, the one that we use most usually is, is um, uh, diazepam unless somebody has liver issues, in which case you use a shorter-acting oxazepam because it doesn't have any active metabolites and you only use it for up to seven days. We have a bit of an issue with some doctors just giving people a, 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 a prescription for 55-milligram diazepam tablets and sending them away to do their detox. doesn't work. It needs to be done in under seven days it needs to be strongly supported whether it's done as an outpatient with pharmacy dispensing or through your practice or through a family member no longer than seven days their detox is done by then doesn't mean it's the end of the illness then the hard work starts about actually starting to change your life to live life without alcohol but do not give them a script for 50 tablets and send it's, them on their way i think what's important for this audience to know is that if someone's considering home detox they need to be supervised by somebody who yeah. knows what it's all about yeah yeah, yeah. So the next thing, of course, apart from the issues of severity, is the readiness of somebody to change. That brings us towards um, something that I'm sure everybody knows about, and that's stages of change. Let's talk about Vincent. He's a 38-year-old self-employed solicitor who's married with two beautiful children, that you can see on this slide. He's just been feeling below par recently and has come for a checkup because he's going to go to boot camp. He's got a past history of depression, but no problems since university, and that's now nearly 20 years ago. He's got a family history of depression, and I think 
think his sister had an eating disorder, if I remember rightly, and he thinks his father's alcoholic, although that's not been been diagnosed. Um, so as a result of his father's alcohol misuse, abuse, hazardous drinking, whatever, he says that he only drinks moderately. So what else do you need to know about Vincent? What would you like to know about Vincent, Jane? So I wonder what drinking moderately actually means. Mm. So it's the same as when people say they drink socially. It actually doesn't give me any information whatsoever, so I'd want to clarify. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really yeah, it's, it's really the thing that stands out on that slide, isn't it? He tells you that he eats well because you are a good enough practitioner to have asked him questions about his diet, that he's currently doing some some exercise, although nothing compared with what he's going to be doing in boot camp. That he's, and when you examine him, if you happen to be a GP or do some investigations to exclude physical causes of his feeling below par, you find that there's nothing, to, nothing really much there. So you're also going to ask the questions about how much he drinks. He drinks beers on Friday nights, shares a bottle of wine with his wife on Saturday nights and sometimes has some beer on Saturday afternoon. But he insists that it's okay because he doesn't drink any spirits like his dad does. So he does admit to feeling pretty awful on some Sundays. What are you hearing about Vincent in all of that? Esther, what are you hearing about Vincent in that extra bit of history? So the first thing is I, I really want to work out what six beers actually means. Is that six long necks, um, you know, with a bottle of wine with, with, with his wife? How much is he actually drinking? Really uh, get quantify that in terms of standard drinks. And he ha- is getting he is experiencing some issues from it with actually feeling really hungover on Sunday mornings. Uh, and I think that idea, you know, look, it's it, people that have a family history of, of alcohol issues are at increased risk themselves just genetically. Um, and, and also that stuff, you know, so what he's doing, is he saying, I don't, my dad drank whiskey, I don't drink whiskey, therefore I'm okay. This idea that somehow whiskey oh. is a worse alcohol than others, it, it, it's, it's about the amount of alcohol, it doesn't matter what form it comes in. So really starting to have some conversations with him around what standard drinks are, what the safer drinking levels are. What I'm hearing about Vincent in all of that is that he might be ready to make a change. Mm. Do you get that sense from him? Yeah, absolutely. To his alcohol. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But just that admission that he feels pretty awful some Sundays may be a clue to the possibility that he's mm-hmm. looking at changing his behaviour around alcohol. Another tool that you might be interested in using is a an a pr- change appraisal grid. Um, Hester, I've ta- heard you talking about this particular method of approaching a problem before. Tell yep. me a little bit how you use it. Yeah, so I think it can be really useful for people to work through this and, and think about what are, what are the good things about drinking? What are the not so good things about drinking? What are the good things about not drinking? And what are the not so good things about not drinking? Mm-hmm. Um, ambivalence is a normal state for human beings. And you've only got to think about the times when you tried to change something in your life and the reasons you came up in, in your head as to why I wasn't you know, going to do that thing today, I've got to do it another day, to understand that ambivalence is normal. And what actually writing down and putting these things down on paper can do is help people to actually really sort through that and sort out where the really important parts lie. Um, uh, and it might be surprising to them and it could be surprising to you. And having the four 
options is good because they, they kind of seem the same, but they actually are slightly different. So it helps just to tease out the complexity of, complexities of, of where they're at and where, what they might want to change. So as you can see, this is a downloadable template for appraising change that you can get from the Psychological Toolkit on the Black Dog Institute website. Tell us about motivational interviewing, Hester. We've come to that point where we need to know what to do next. We, we've uh, assessed the stage of change that our patient is at and we've talked to them about the, the good and bad aspects of change. What do we do now? So it may be that um, with many people just doing a very quick brief intervention, which is just giving information and, and they all go away and make that change themselves. People do change all the time without us. Don't forget that. But for some people, if, they're, if, if you're feeling like they do need some more support and they're thinking about change, but they're not sure, they're contemplating change, motivational interviewing is fantastic at that point. Mm. And, and so certainly with our, with our um, case study, th there was that sense of I, I'm, I'm thinking about it, but I'm not sure. So we're going to give information so he's able to make some informed choices, but also think about what is, what, what, where is he up to and what's important for him. Uh, one of the really important things for me, and I know it's the same with all the people that I've done some training with around motivational interviewing, is it's really hard not to intervene. And you get so easy from the outside to see what people need to do, that writing reflex. You know, all you need to do is give up, give up drinking. You know, you'll be fine. We can, we can see what they need to do. Ooh. But we it's not up to us to decide that. It's up to us to work through this. And motivational interviewing is a, is, is a very focused strategy, which is around helping people to actually look at their ambivalence and to build their um, their desire to make change. But it's really being with where they're at. One of the things that I find really useful is, is being ready, willing and able. So asking people on a scale of zero to 10 where zero is not important at all and 10 is super super important how important is it that you make this change people might say oh three out of ten now what you know from that is they're probably not going to make a change because it's not that important but what i would always say to them is why is it so high why is it three tell me why it's not zero to really start to tease out what's going on for them but do the same with confidence zero confidence 10 total confidence with making this change. Where are you on that scale? And generally, if you get someone that's around about a seven, seven for importance and seven for confidence, you can be pretty confident that they've got the skills they need to begin to make that change. They may not be quite ready yet, but it's very likely that in the next little while they will be able to make that. Now, if you want to learn more about motivational interviewing, I suggest that a very good place to start is the OnTrack alcohol program. Now, OnTrack is a suite of programs from Queensland University of Technology that has this alcohol program and as well as that, it's got another specific program for people who are both depressed and have alcohol mm. problems. Mm. But if you log on, if you register to do this alcohol program as a consumer, as a user, as a patient, if you like, and run your way through that alcohol program, you will see what motivational interviewing is about from the other side of the of the desk, as it were. So, so that's a really good thing to do to learn about motivational interviewing because it's something that translates quite well to the online environment, and it's great to see it in action. If you don't, if you don't think you've got an alcohol problem and you want to think about some other aspect of your life, you can probably do that too. But get on there and have a look at it because you'll learn a great deal from that. And clients love it too. Yeah, mm. there's a, there's also um, another couple of 
wonderful demonstration videos by a guy called Alan Lime on YouTube, which show Alan doing it well and doing it badly. And if you watch <laughs> both of them, you'll get a very good idea of what doing it well is all about. There are also a multitude of online courses in motivational interviewing and face-to-face -face courses. And there are also a, a lot of resources to support people who are trying to reduce their alcohol consumption. This is just a few of them. Counseling Online is a website that offers uh, phone and online chat for people who are trying to change their behavior for, uh, around alcohol. Hello Sunday Morning is a wonderful website. Mm -hmm. And Daybreak, which I again will put off talking about for one more minute, um, is the app that's associated with Hello Sunday Morning. Sarah's going to tell us a little bit about Shade. Mm, so Shade's a great free Australian online um, program um, that people can work through with a Shade clinician or with their health professional that they're linked in with. And as health professionals, we can sign up to it too. And it's got a whole lot of modules that you can do in a 10-week program that you can work through in order or pick and choose as you feel fit and suited to your needs. And it's, it's great CBT-based, evidence-based and, yeah, um, engaging as well. Red Frogs is a favourite of Hester's. Um, Yes. <laughs> yeah, look, they have a really nice website that has quite a bit of information, but they also can come along and it's a group of young people that will come along, come along to your events, like they go to schoolies, they go to university um, orientation weeks uh, and festivals, and they're there being young people just kind of suggesting and supporting young people to uh, to, to actually choose to, to, to not drink or to drink at safer levels. Um, fantastic group of young people. It's always, it's always a, a very positive experience. Um, interacting for our young people interacting with red frogs young people and what about assist yeah look this is one of my personal faves um it's from the university of adelaide so if you just google assist at uni of adelaide you will get it there's actually a portal with heaps of information and it's not just about alcohol it's about other drugs as well which is great um and it also comes with an app uh, for people to actually do a checkup so they can check through what what how much alcohol they're using or other drugs that they're using and it comes up with tips uh, around some of the harms that they might be causing how they might change it how they might seek more help it's a really great um, website and app and I really encourage all practitioners to take a look at it. And of course a lot of the adolescent apps have got information, of, uh, apps, websites have got information about alcohol and drugs, mm. um, reach out and mm. headspace, headspace and uh, mm. all those those sorts of uh, youth, uh, uh, young beyond blue, what's it called? Youth Beyond Blue. Youth Beyond Blue, that's what it's called, yeah. But here's the Daybreak app. The Daybreak is an app that is free to all Australians as a result of federal government subsidisation. It's $9.99 for anybody outside of Australia. Um, it consists of moderated forums for people who want to change their relationship with alcohol. So they're, they're moderated by, by um, practitioners and um, they're aimed at su people supporting one another in a, in a kind of AA sort of way. Um, but as well as those forums, there are also one-on-one -on -one chats available with life coaches, which is fantastic. I accidentally tried to post on a forum the other day and ended up with in contact with one of the life coaches and I nearly shriveled up and died because it wasn't exactly what I was trying to do. It takes a little bit of getting to know the app before you feel comfortable with it. The other thing it does is sends you daily SMS reminders about forum activity. It doesn't say 
who said you'd stop drinking and what are you doing now? It's and or this is a reminder to stop drinking. It says there's someone on the forum who needs your support. Please log into the forum and talk to so and so about about this. So then they're not targeted. They're just reminders to get onto the forum with a. a, a philosophy of everybody helping everybody else and there's a section too that encourages people to design and undertake behavioral experiments around changing their behavior in relation to alcohol and that's a really good section of the app so i do commend that to you as something that might be worth looking at and go on and register and be part of it yourself and um you'll know what the patient experience is like. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion and learnt something useful as we went along. You can watch the whole of the webinar unedited on the Black Dog Institute website, the MPRAC page of the Black Dog Institute website. If you'd like to know more specifically about online resources, make your first port of call the Head to Health website, which is a repository of all the Australian evidence-based e-mental health resources. Sam, the chatbot on Head to Health, will be happy to help you find what you need. <laughs>